Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, I was going to start uh, this sermon by noting uh, how the opening words of uh, chapter 3 are almost identical to the opening words of chapter 1, and that this is uh, therefore a uh, take-two moment in the life of Jonah, and therefore a wonderful reminder of the good news that our God is the God of second chances. Uh, Until I read an article uh, urging pastors to stop saying that our God is a God of second chances. And so I thought again. The writer said this, God gives second chances, conjures the picture of God saying to us, okay, you did your best and failed, so now I'm going to give you another chance to prove yourself. In what world does that sound like good news? And another writer on a similar theme said, God gives second chances carries the depressing message, God forgives, now the rest is up to you. I think that's probably 
an overstatement and an overreaction. I think you can use that phrase and not mean those things by it. But nevertheless, it did two things. First, it alerted me to a potential misunderstanding. And secondly, it sent me back to Jonah to ask the question, what has gone before that leads to Jonah being where he is and uh, at this take-two moment at the beginning of chapter 3? And as I did that, I was struck by how God's grace through the book of Jonah does actually do, it gives Jonah more than a second chance. He gets more than that. What he gets, particularly in chapter 2, is the sight of his salvation. God wants to do more than give him a second chance. He wants to change him. And he does that by giving him sight of his salvation, a sight of salvation that provokes his repentance, that promotes peace rather than a sense of ongoing probation, and empowers Jonah for the life that God is continuing to call him into. That is what he does for Jonah. That, I think, is what he does for us as followers of the Lord Jesus. I've got two uh, headings to navigate through uh, Jonah 3 uh, this morning. The first is the restoration of Jonah, and the second is the repentance of the Ninevites. So first, the restoration of Jonah. Does Jonah just get a second chance to do the right thing? Well, no, he gets much more than that, doesn't he? He's not just picked up and put back on square one at the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 2 comes in between. He's given an experience of the salvation of God in which he lives. He gets a life-transforming taste of the grace of God, which opens his eyes afresh to the powerful, personal work and presence of God in his life. He doesn't just get a second chance. In fact, what does he get after his rebellion of chapter 1? Not so much a second chance as a storm. He gets the storm of God's judgment on his rebellion. And then he gets the experience of the salvation of God as he is swallowed by the fish that is sent by God. And together, that sense of uh, judgment on his sin and gracious salvation by his God, those two things draw from him in the fish repentance, a grasping afresh that salvation belongs to the Lord, and a commitment to live in the light of that salvation. And then having grasped those things afresh, he is resurrected. He is vomited out onto the shore at the beginning of at the end of chapter 2, which is where we find him at the beginning of chapter 3. He's resurrected onto the shore a changed man. Now, he's not fully changed, and if you've read the end of the story and you've got to chapter 4, you will know that there is still lots more the Lord needs to do in him. But the point is this, he's changed enough to do that which God calls him to do in chapter 3. Through his experience of God's saving power, he is now better able to be obedient to the call to preach salvation to others, because he's experienced his own afresh. If God can save, if God can keep a wayward prophet, then he can save the wayward Ninevites. 
And of course, it is God and his desire and his ability to save people that is the focus of the book of Jonah. Jonah's obedience is not so much his success as it is the Lord's success. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He can keep his wayward prophet, and he can turn a wayward people. Jonah, did you notice as it was read to us, he barely opens his mouth in chapter 3. It's almost comical. It's this huge city, one of the largest in the ancient world. Took three days to walk across it. He arrives. He sets up his stall. He opens his mouth. He gets halfway through the first evangelistic sermon, in a sense, and all of Nineveh repents. I think we're supposed to be struck by that. I think we're supposed to be struck by the, by the remembrance of the key verse in chapter 2 that salvation comes from the Lord. If he can keep his servant, he can also turn the hearts of a wayward people. The book of Jonah is all about God and his wonderful salvation that accomplishes always God's purposes. And that, I think, is what, therefore, we must remember in the face of our waywardness. The Christian life is not so much, or at least it's bigger than, it's better than simply a series of chances, second, third, fourth, etc., chances. It's better than an extended probation in which we're given lots of chances to prove ourselves. No, the life of grace is the life lived under the promise that Jesus Christ has lived the perfect life for us. That Jesus Christ died our death for us as the greater Jonah. He was swallowed by the earth for three days and he was raised from the earth on the third day. So when we fail, as we all do, God does not send us to a second chance saloon. He sends us to the whale because he wants to transform us by pointing us again to the death and the resurrection of our greater Jonah, Jesus. It's there that we remember afresh that our sin is serious, that there was a storm, but that it fell on Jesus Christ, and our Savior is gracious. And that draws forth that continuing repentance and faith that is the characteristic of the Christian life. We are reminded that we are secure in Jesus, and that like Jonah, Jesus will transform us even in and through our failures and equip us to go on and to grow on in the future through the power of his resurrection. So when we fail, we don't give up. We don't resign ourselves to living some kind of lesser plan B, and then the next day an even lesser plan C, and then the next day and so on. We don't despair that God cannot use us. The good news of Jonah is that God's grace is bigger and it is better than that. We don't give up on ourselves because God does not give up on his people. We don't resign ourselves to living a plan B because God's salvation is able to incorporate our failures into the ongoing outworking of his plan A for us. There is good work yet to be done because salvation comes from the Lord. He's good at it. It's what he does. He keeps his people, rescues his people. And this understanding, I think, of grace, it keeps us from being careless about sin, precisely because God's grace flows from the cross, in which we see the seriousness of our sin. 
So the life of grace doesn't make us careless about sin, but it does bring us comfort in the face of our sin. It draws forth repentance and it gives comfort. As we turn again to our Savior, we experience afresh the comfort that flows from belonging to one who covers our sin, secures our status as his children, empowers our life, calls us constantly back into his service. Not necessarily the same ministry, uh, but always part of God's good plans for us. Grace draws forth repentance, and repentance draws forth the joy that changes us. And it's to the nature of joy-bringing and life-changing repentance that we now turn. The restoration of Jonah, secondly, the repentance of Nineveh. Jesus said in, uh, in the Gospels that Nineveh uh, is a picture of, or at least pictures some elements of the nature of true repentance. And there were three things that, came, um, that spoke to me as I read uh, about the Ninevites' repentance in the face of Jonah's preaching. Three things. Here's the first. The first thing they do uh, rightly is they recognize that sin is serious and they respond in sorrow. That's verses 4 and 5, if you have Jonah 3 open in front of you, page 928. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, least, put on sackcloth. And of course, the king then announces a decree which does and says much the same thing. So first, notice the Ninevites believe God's word which is to say they believe that they have been uh, living uh, sinfully and that that sinfulness is going to bring uh, some uh, judgment from God. So the first grace they receive from God is his word, from the prophet Jonah. And the second grace they receive from God is that he opens their eyes to see their own sin and its consequences, which is where life-giving repentance always begins. One of uh, my favorite uh, Uh, writers on uh, repentance says this, the first part of Christ's medicine is eye salve. And that is right. But secondly, their belief issues in action. Their inward conviction is expressed outwardly. They fast, which was often a sign of grief in the Old Testament. They put on sackcloth, which was often a sign of humility. And those physical actions are an outward expression of the inward conviction of their sorrow for sin. What does that mean uh, for us? Are we uh, moved by our sin, I think is the question that is begged. Should we be moved by our sin? After all, uh, doesn't the New Testament uh, reassure us that there is no condemnation in Christ, that our guilt is taken, that our penalty is paid? Well, yes, it does, and amen to that. But the Apostle Paul, for instance, writing in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it is, talks about a right and godly sorrow towards sin. There is a right sorrow that we feel towards our sin. It is a sorrow, I think, for disobeying our king, a sorrow that flows from um, an awareness of our sin's costliness for Christ, a sorrow that flows from knowing that we are grieving the indwelling Holy Spirit when we sin, a sorrow that flows from knowing that we're uh, potentially damaging ourselves and potentially damaging other people in our sin. So there is a right, a right sorrow for sin. We're all different emotionally, so how we feel that will be different for all of us. But the point is this. Sin is, is always, 
supposed to be sobering. It's not a light thing. But neither should it be a crushing thing. There is a world of difference between godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and comfort, and destructive despair. Uh, The former looks to Christ and finds joy. The latter can so often turn and hide and flee from Christ's comfort. And the gospel, as ever, helps us to walk the line between a right and healthy sorrow and a wrong and destructive despair. The gospel keeps us from being glib in the face of sin because our sins had to be borne by the death of Jesus. But the gospel also keeps us from despair because Christ gladly bore our sin for us. So the first thing they do uh, rightly is they recognize sin is serious and they respond in sorrow, and so should we. The second thing is that they recognize God is Savior and they speak specifically about their sin. Look how the king goes on in verse, uh, I think it's 8. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So notice, they don't minimize their sin. They don't hide it. They take ownership of it, and they express it. They take it to God in prayer. They're specific in their repentance. The king pinpoints violence as one of the great outworkings of their sin. And that... I think is a helpful lesson for us. I think there's a sense in which the more specific I am in my repentance, the greater scope I'm giving God to grow me through my repentance. The more life-transforming His ongoing work of salvation will be in me. Um, It's good and right to uh, pray uh, general prayers of confession, particularly when we meet together. Of course, that is, that is the right kind of prayer to pray. We must, if, we're, if we're speaking as one body, we need to uh, pray uh, generally in terms of our confession. But we also need to be praying, I think, at times personally and perhaps as one or two trusted friends, specifically about our sin. Because if we don't repent specifically, there's a danger that as we uh, ask the Holy Spirit to uh, uh, forgive and to help um, change us, there's a sense in which the Spirit will say to us, how? Uh, where do you want me? What, what, what part of you do you want me to reform and to change? Where do you want to see the power of God at work in your life? Where do you want to join me in that uh, life of change and progression and becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we don't have an answer to that, then I think we're not going to experience the kind of transformation, the kind of joy of me and God at work together, the kind of power of God at work in my life that I would if I'd taken the time to think, okay, actually where in my life uh, am I not yet? how I should be? Where do I need the Spirit to be at work? Where do I need to be at work with Him? Where do I want to see God's power at work? If we just confess generally, we're in danger of underplaying the life-transforming element of repentance. And it is, of course, only grace that will free us to be honest in that way. One writer said, we have zero motivation to repent unless we see the mercy of God awaiting us, not the slap of God but the embrace of God. Christ is our saviour, and he is our surgeon. 
He wants to have those, if you like, bad bits exposed to him. He wants to be able to embrace them precisely so that he can heal them. Repentance involves exposing our sin specifically to his healing gaze and his healing grace. And we'll do that only insofar as we believe that Christ is a loving Savior and an excellent surgeon. Then we will specifically yield our sorrows and our struggles to him. So that's the second thing they get, right? They recognize God is their Savior and they speak specifically to him. And thirdly, finally, the third thing they do is they seek to reform their lives as they seek to live in line with their repentance. The king says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Repentance involves striving to express in our lives what we have said with our lips and sought with our hearts. Repentance is always meant to be the doorway to newness of life. A turning towards God is always meant to result in a turning away from sin. It may not uh, be uh, perfect success uh, that is the mark of this aspect of repentance. Some of our struggles against some uh, things will be, uh, will be ongoing. We know we will, our struggle against sin generally will always be ongoing until the Lord raises us in sin-free bodies. This is about an orientation. It is about purpose. It is about a commitment to change, to throw off the old and to put on the new. It is motivated by the love of God and the means of salvation that he brings. As we turn afresh in repentance towards the love of God made known in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are reminded that in him we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and we step afresh into the river of God's redeeming grace. And that is why, as uh, Um, that writer I quoted earlier uh, puts it, repentance does not crucify joy, it clarifies it. For it takes us back to the place where our joy is rooted and secured. And it is this joy in our Savior and our salvation that changes us, that progresses us in the Christian life, that equips us for the next stage, the next thing that God is calling us into. Whoever has our heart has our lives. And as we wade in the healing waters of his grace, as we turn towards him whose presence is true joy, as we submit to his rule which brings freedom, so we are better equipped not to fall for the empty promises and shallow pleasures of sin. So we will strive with the Spirit to let go of lesser things that we might increasingly grasp the greater thing, to uh, renounce shadow, to increasingly bask in the sunlight, to forsake lie, to increasingly know truth, to throw off our fetters, to increasingly and more freely walk in the freedom Christ has won for us. As one writer put it, true repentance is always grace-inspired and newness creating. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you indeed would fill us with your spirit and your grace, that our repentance towards you, our turning towards you and away from sin would be inspired by your grace, your love for us, shown, demonstrated supremely in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn afresh 
to the Lord Jesus Christ and see our sin taken by him in his death and our uh, newness of life bestowed upon us in his resurrection so our repentance might always be a doorway into joy and a doorway into transformation. And we pray it in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.